I want to pick up on verse 6 again, um, talk a bit about that quite remarkable passage in 1 Peter. Um, I am looking toward finishing 1 Peter fairly soon here. Uh, and then I, I think if I think we plan to do this, but we're going to go right into 2 Peter then. Um, that's a much shorter book, but still follows in some of the, the themes as well. Now I'm, I'm on the other side of a cold, so I'm, I mean, I'm fine, but I'm still <clears throat> doing this a lot and sniffing a bit, so I apologize if that's offensive, but um, I'm a lot better than I was. In verse 5 again, we read this instruction, humble yourselves, therefore under the mighty hand of God, so at the proper time he may exalt you. We had covered that last week, so I'm not going to go over that again, but that in the important virtue of humility, which in this particular section is focusing on the character of the believer. Humility is a very key virtue of character. But please note, and I, I can't remember if we got this far last week or not, I just don't remember, but verse 7 says, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Um, if I can be grammatic for just a moment, Verse 7 is a participle, casting all your cares. And that is a uh, uh, participle of manner. It's described. How do you humble yourself? By casting all your anxieties. Some of your translations might have cares. But anxieties is really a better translation there. So just think about that. Humility as a virtue, a character trait of the one who walks with the Lord is demonstrated by coming to the clear understanding, I can't do this on my own. So I must cast all my worries and anxieties on the Lord. Why would I do that? The rest of the clause. Because he cares for you. So let's, let's paraphrase it. Humility is cultivated by a life of dependence on the Lord. And uh, there's no greater manifestation of that, that dependence than casting our anxieties, our worries on the Lord. Letting him take those. Why? Because he cares for us. So that, this little passage right here is one of my wife's favorite verses in the Bible because it, it's so... Uh, so captures this uh, wonderful life of why should I bear all the burden of these worries when I can cast them on the, on the Lord? Now let's talk a little bit about that. That sounds so wonderful and so spiritual. But what does that mean, cast your anxieties on the Lord? What does that mean? Praying and and asking him to guide you through this, or, or trust, trust, trusting, trusting in him. It's it's an act of faith. Um, Turning it, offering it up to him. Yeah, well, yeah. and, and is it? It is really. It's one of those. May, may I use this this word? It's one of those patterns or habits that it's hard for us to get into. Now, let me explain what I mean by that. Because if, I'll just 
make up something. <clears throat> you're heading into a difficult day, and you begin your day by, as it says right here, casting your anxieties on the Lord. Lord, I have this and this and this to do, and these things are very difficult. And I had a lot of anxiety. I've worked hard preparing for it, but Lord, I'm still worried. I didn't sleep well last night. And and then we, we pray about it. We say, Lord, please take this. I'm going to trust you with all the results. And then we get up from our prayers, and we take it all back and worry and anxiety. <laughs> you follow what I'm saying? I know you conceptually don't even have a clue what I'm talking about, but abstractly imagine. But anyway, you know exactly what I'm talking about. The pattern and habit is you give it to the Lord in prayer, and you say, Lord, I, I, I really am dependent on you because this is, this is tearing me apart. And then you get up and you say, that's the Lord's. I'm not going to take it back. He's promised to, to be with me. He's promised to never leave me. He's promised to never forsake me. I mean, all of those promises, and then you leave it with him. That takes time. That is not something typically, uh, maybe some of you guys are exceptional to that, but that's typically a discipline and a habit and a pattern we have to learn. Do you, you understand what I'm saying? Because this sounds so wonderful and spiritual, and you want to say amen to it, but I would suggest most of us really struggle with how to really live this out. In another part of Scripture, and Paul's the author of this in Philippians 4, verse, uh, I guess verse 7, he says, do not worry about anything, but instead pray about everything. So the antidote to worry is what? Talking to God about it. And leaving it there. Somebody had a hint. Yeah, Glenn, I'm sorry. I didn't... Isn't this also a function of uh, what the first chapter you talk about perseverance? Mm-hmm. Being persecuted. So isn't this an element of how you have to, what gets you through it? How mm-hmm. you can uh, True. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, I mean, that is the primary theme of this particular book because these folks to whom he's writing are undergoing tremendous persecution. And it's, it's, but it's all of the things, because he's not being specific, but certainly that was a focus they would have thought of. But for you and for me, it's that, it's that mindset. When I give it to the Lord, I leave it there. <laughs> and that's faith. That's trust. It's dependent. And we, we have to learn that. We have to learn that. And I think one of the things that we start to see as we walk with the Lord and and really begin to to live this is we do see truly the Lord takes our anxieties and takes the the kind of almost unbearable burdens. There's a wonderful passage in, um, well, maybe you're not as familiar with this, but John Bunyan, do you know that name? Pilgrim's Progress. Did you ever? You're familiar with that? It's a classic Puritan work of, the, of centuries ago. But it's uh, it's an allegory. It's really it's worth spending some time in it if you are if you want to. But he has one picture, uh, word picture allegory. Uh, the, the the hero of of the book is uh, Christian. That's his name. And he's going up this hill, and it's just the burden is so enormous and so heavy and Finally, you know, he, he takes it to the Lord, and, and, and the freedom, the burden drops off his shoulders and rolls down the hill. And he never picks it up again. 
I mean, that's just, a, it's a figure, it's an allegory, it's, it's, but it's, it's a powerful illustration, and that's what Bunyan was doing in that wonderful classic, of what this really means. What's his name again? The Pilgrim's Progress. That's, that's short, Pilgrim's Progress. It's a classic of Puritan literature. Bunyan lived in England, passed a little tiny church, and he was a tinker by, he was a tinker by trade. That was his trade. He never went to seminary. But he was just one of those remarkably gifted guys that God raised up in a time when, uh, well, anyway, yeah. Well, we've got to be careful just because he relieves the anxiety, he doesn't solve the problem. Not at all. No, right. not at all. So you can't just drop it and walk away from it. No, no, that's not, no, that's not, that's taking that too far. But it's that the antidote to worry and anxiety is the Lord and your faith and trust and dependence on Him. Now, that the corollary of that is do it. That mean I don't plan, I don't think, I don't work. No, that's not what it means. A very, very, very close friend of mine who was actually one of my mentors years and years ago um, just just said, "You you do your best. You work hard. You plan. I mean, you do all those things." And this, this is the statement that I've always found so comforting. But you leave the results with the Lord. And that, you understand what I mean? You leave the results with the Lord. Because you can't control the results. You can, you know, I, I'm thinking of a project you're working on or a, a very important meeting you're going to have or you're interviewing for a job. I mean, just all those things which are often real stress points in life. And... Um, you do, you do all you think you can possibly do. You work hard, you plan, you, but you leave the results to the Lord. And that, to me, that's, that's the faith and trust and dependence on the Lord. I'm going to do, Lord, everything I believe I need to do as being a good steward of whatever this is, but I'm going to leave those results to you, and I will accept whatever those results are. Now, it isn't exactly parallel, but in Daniel chapter 3, I'm in my church, I'm doing a series on Daniel. <clears throat> my pastor wanted me to do that. And I titled the series, Daniel, A Study in Character and Consistency. And chapter 3 is the heroic faith of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And that's, a, that's, that's heroic faith. But the really important part of that is when they, you know, they refuse to bow down to this statue that Nebuchadnezzar makes. And, and Nebuchadnezzar says, bow down to this thing. I'm going to kill you. I'm going to throw you in this furnace. And they said, Nebuchadnezzar, we're not going to bow down. Now, we believe that our God is going to rescue us. So we will not bow down. But even if he does not rescue us, we still believe in him and still will not bow down to you. That's heroic faith. They're leaving the results to the Lord. Whether they're killed that morning or not, the Lord is still the Lord. And, and so whatever you are trying to coerce us, we're not going to be anxiety-ridden and lose sleep over this. I'm really embellishing that. But I mean, it's that kind of, I'm leaving the results to the Lord. He's still God. He's still the sovereign Lord. And that's, that is a tremendously difficult thing for you and me as finite people to do, to live that way. It is, uh, and sometimes I turn it over to the Lord, and, I'll, and, uh, and I think I have turned it over to him, and then I'll get this thought in my mind, 
that I wonder if that's the still small voice of the Lord speaking to me and, and offering me another avenue to approach this thing that I'm trying to. In other words, I get right back into self. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. And, uh, that's probably more the norm than we're willing to admit, what you just summarized. But I think, Woody, the, one of the marks and touchstones of, of our growth in dependence and trust in the Lord is we do that fewer and fewer times. Or there's a greater distance between the amount. Of, and I, it, because remember, as we've talked many times, our growth in the Lord, our sanctification is a process. It, it, and we are just learning that day by day by day. And you are a lot farther along now than you were 10 years ago. All right? Now the next verse is a second, a second part of humbling yourself. It's verse 8. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Now that's how the ESV is translating that. Now, probably most of your translations, if you don't have ESV, are very similar to that. Both of those, those their phrases, be watchful, be sober-minded, what, what did they communicate to you? I guess for me, when I release that anxiety, I get clarity. Mm. So when I read sober-minded and that's, that's be good. watchful, I have the clarity of what's going on around me. That anxiety, that loss of the emotional aspect of what's going on that's what clouds it that's very that's very true that's very true and faith and dependence gives you that clarity um watchful what would be another way of saying that be alert right yep. uh, sober-minded what would be that's a little maybe a little more diff- difficult sober-minded what would be another way of thinking about that unpacking that thought be free of the anxiety. Free, free of the anxiety. Yeah. And, and Joel? NIV says self-control. Self-control, okay. I mean, you're you're not allowing the circumstances and all of the fears to control you. Yes, okay. It's And I like how Glenn did it. You're, he, he's tying these two things together. So as we are casting our cares on the Lord and so on, with the result of stability, a sober mind, and alertness, the reason that's important so again, this is the reason why you've got to be dependent on the Lord. You have to be humble. Because you have an enemy. So as you cast your anxieties on the Lord and leave them there, and you then have that capacity to be alert, to, to, to not allow other things and circumstances to be dominating and controlling you because you have an enemy out there. And notice what he does. Your adversary, the devil. Now, a really, I I always use this, a very important cross-reference, whenever you see the term devil or Satan, is always Revelation 12, 9 and following. Because there, you know, that's in that really important chapter of the book of Revelation, but there you have all the names and all the titles and all the descriptive phrases of our enemy. The serpent of old, a liar from the beginning. I mean, all of those words, and and adversary, devil means adversary. Your enemy is out to get you. And so Peter is, humility is 
got two phases, casting all of your anxieties on the Lord, because he cares for you, and the subsequent result will be, a, I love how Glenn put it, a clarity. You're alert. You're, you're in control to the glory of the Lord, not being by, controlled by the circumstances, but by the Lord, because you need that. You are in a spiritual battle. And another cross-reference to this is Ephesians 6, 10 and following, which leads us into the whole armor of God. But there Paul says, you are in a battle. And we do not war against flesh and blood. We war against, and he has all these descriptive lists of the demonic powers that are against us, including, of course, Satan. So, you know, it's... Yeah, but I, I, I like Peter's simplicity, right? He's just, it's just back to that, that voice he has. It's very intimate and personal. Yeah, you've got an enemy, and it's up to you to be prepared for it. Your role is casting your cares, God, yes, but your role is that dependence and that humility, dependence on the Lord, casting your, because your enemy, and what's your enemy like? He This is all figurative. He prowls around like a roaring lion, <laughs> seeking to someone to devour. And the, the reality, and this is what Paul's doing in Ephesians 6, the reality is we have to be prepared. We've mentioned this many times, at least I think we have, I can recall saying it a couple of times, but one of, uh, I think, the most uh, penetrating of C.S. Lewis's books is um, the Screw Tape Letters, and are any of you familiar with that? It's it's worth uh, it, my. It's one of my sons. My son likes literature and stuff. But it's one of his favorite books, simply because of the immense creativity that Lewis uses there uh, to try to depict. What are the strategies of our adversary? What are the strategies of our enemy? And, and among other things, what he says is he, he says, um, he studies us. He looks for our vulnerabilities. He looks for our weaknesses. And then he studies the culture in which we live. And he, I mean, I'm really embellishing some of those this, this parts, but... He, he says to, um, it's dialogue between a senior demon and a demon training. <laughs> I don't think it works, but it's just an allegory. It's a story. So and he says, this is what I want you to do. I want you to study that guy. And I want you to study his surroundings. Is he an intellectual? Is he brilliant? Has he spent a lot of time? If he is, then you don't, what you want to do is you want to go around the end run. You, you, you don't want to attack him in the front. You want to go and you want to put doubts in his mind about the goodness of God. You, you want him to think it's unreasonable for me to believe that a God really cares for me. That's what you want to do. And I think what Lewis has done there, he's really captured. He uses scripture, but he builds this allegory, this story. Of, that's exactly what Satan is doing. And this is what Peter's saying. Your adversary is prowling around like a roaring lion to pounce on you. What's the name of the letters again? The screw tape letters. Screw tape is all one word. Screw tape letters. 
I mean, it's a it's a fascinating and you know Lewis, you know, you know who he is. When I say so, everybody knows who he is. Don't you? I mean, he 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 died he died the day Kennedy was assassinated. That's why nobody remembers that because they all remember Kennedy being assassinated. But C.S. Lewis died the same day he was assassinated in 1963. Well, I don't know why I said all that, but what what Lewis did, he came to faith. He was an atheist who came to faith in Christ, and. He used the brilliant mind God gave him to become a great apologist for Christianity. And his, his writings reflect that. He's trying, to, he's trying to address to a growing skeptical 20th century mind the case for Christianity. Daryl. We know that Satan is not omnipresent, but um, this is a good one maybe to use raise the question, how can you talk about Satan um, prowling around like you know, he's seeking somebody to devour? Well, is he devouring, you know, is he searching for me at the same time everybody else is <laughs> all scattered all over the country? Yeah. Is it just, um, what, what, how do I read that? Well, that's a great question, a very good practical question. And I, I think the only way to answer that question is the is the way in which Paul talks about it there in Ephesians 6. He lists the hierarchy of these angelic, rebellious, demonic uh, enemies of ours. You know, another way to give a sense of the enormity of these numbers is if we're understanding an earlier verse in Revelation 12, one-third of the angels joined Satan in his rebellion. And we don't have a finite number on how many angels there are. But it's certainly more than a few hundred. You know, it's, if, if angels are the messengers of God and we can build the case that each person has, I think we can, each person has a guardian angel who's put their faith in Christ, that's hundreds of millions, billions perhaps. So all I'm saying to you is that begins to give us an understanding, Daryl, of the minions of Satan that are involved in this strategy. And that's what Lewis is trying to get at. Satan has his minions of evil who are at his behest and do what he wants them to do. And he's the head. So it's like, you know, the, you know Eisenhower, Eisenhower pulled off D-Day in June of 1944. No, he didn't. He was the leader, but we speak of Eisen. You know what I mean. So it's in that same way. He's the collective head of everything he represents. Hello, Andrew. How are you doing? I'm doing okay. How's your second child doing? Uh, he's doing great. How's your wife doing with the second child? Um, she's tired. Good. That's good. <laughs> Ask how Andrew is. I want a lot of coffee. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's at this part of your life where you re- realize again that next to Jesus and your wife, coffee's got its greatest oh, gift. So. Anyway, right. so the, maybe another key word here is roaring. Where roaring, you think of a lion roaring, you think of aggressive roaring, but this is roaring that is loud and drowning out all the other messages. The, the message of God is just drowning stuff out, and, and it's it's attracting your attention. It's it's like like uh, going to a concert and the amps are turned way up. Your your attention goes to the stage. Yeah. You know? 
or you go home like I do because it's too loud. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I, I know exactly what you mean. That's a great comment about Roar, John. I've never gotten around to reading the screw tape letters, oh, but mm-hmm. does C.S. Lewis have suggestions how to resist, how to overcome the strategy? Well, uh, that's not a main part of the book, but at the end he he does, and it's uh, the best best antidote is what's in Ephesians 6, putting on the whole armor of God. It's, and that's really what I, because they're all figures of speech or metaphors, you know, the the belt of truth. Remember who you are, remember your identity. Don't let him misrepresent the truth to you. You have the personal truth in Jesus Christ, and you have the verbal truth in your It's That's the best antidote to, to Satan's attack. And so Peter then, that very next verse, he tells us, resist him. Now there's, again, that's an action word. That's not a passive word. That's a command. It's in the imperative mood. Resist him. How do you do that? Firm in your faith. Resist him as the command, firm in your faith tells you how to do it. So, I mean, that's, again, a cross-reference to that, as I said to John there, a cross-reference to that is Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10, all the way through the end of the chapter. And it's it's just, I always, when I've uh, done some pastoral counseling with folks who are struggling with some of these things, it's just always remember who you are. Remember who you are in Christ. Remember your identity in Christ. Don't let Satan or his minions convict you that you keep failing and keep stumbling. You're not worth anything. God's done with you. God will never accept you back. That's an absolute lie out of the pit of hell. So it's it's remembering who you are, remembering your identity, remembering what Christ has done for you, and you have appropriated it by faith. It's that just going through that. Because when Jesus was tempted, when his, his adversary attacked him, what did he do? You know the answer to that. He quoted scripture. He quoted scripture to Satan. Even when Satan tried to distort scripture in that second temptation, Jesus immediately quoted back. And he used that authoritative truth. So, you know, it's just, again, that, that would be kind of that third key dimension of, of humbling ourselves. Resist him. Because you have the resources to do that. Firm in your faith. Be- and knowing there, again, I think most of you translate, knowing is a causal part of suffering. So you can translate that. Because you know the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. You're not the only one being tempted. You're not the only one. This isn't unique to you. Because Satan is after. Satan is after. If Satan can embarrass and humiliate the Lord through those who name him, he thinks he's one. I've often said, and you and I, I don't think you need any imagination to realize that. If I were Satan, my strategy would always be go after the leaders. Go after the leaders. Go after pastors. Go, at, go after the, the key leaders that, that people use to identify what Christianity looks like. Pick them off one by one. And 
that does seem to be sometimes his strategy. You see these tragic, tragic people that are in leadership that fall. And I'll praise the Lord, many of them, most of them don't. But Amen. that's a very, very effective strategy that he seems to have. <clears throat> so we've been in this paragraph for a while. This is a very significant paragraph. And that's and all I'm talking about is verse 5 and through 9. It's a short paragraph, but my, that's loaded with a tremendous amount of, of, of truth for you and for me uh, 2,000 years after this was written. Any final questions or comments before we, yeah, Joel? I was thinking in uh, James uh, 4, I think, he uh, says, James says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Great. Which is kind of what happened when Jesus Great. resisted him. And so Absolutely. It's, I mean, there's some, I guess there's some encouragement or hope there. Absolutely. That, well, he'll come back, but maybe, you know, the more you resist, maybe the more yeah. you Find somebody else to yeah. <laughs> Not forever, but yeah. You know, it, it, no, that's a great cross reference. James four was that maybe about nine, eight or nine, I think. That is a great cross reference to this. Thank you. That is really, really a good cross reference. Because, uh, and again, as you correctly said, the model for that is Jesus. Um, yeah. What did you, did you want to say something? I did. I, I would, uh, in an effort to resist, uh, we need to recognize when we're being, when the devil's after us and, and when we do resistance can do I think kind of like Christ did and quote a verse or something from the Bible or, or say get thee away from me mm -hmm. Satan and, mm -hmm. you know like that a, a sort of a command or a prayer or something like if God is for me who can be against me there you go exactly right like exactly right that would be a way of resistance mm -hmm. when you recognize the fact that you are being mm -hmm. tempted or mm -hmm. encouraged to do Thoughts something. are coming into your mind that, that all of those things, that's, that's exactly right, Woody. It's just, we, I know we've talked about this before, it's having that strategy for holiness mm -hmm. that when I am attacked, when thoughts are just pouring into my mind, I know they're not of the Lord, how do I deal with those? Yeah. When the temptations that are just unique to me, what am I going to do with those? How am I going to handle this? Um, and it's and it's just so easy to say this, but it, it really is absolutely true. When you look at Daniel chapter 1, and I, I'm just real familiar because I've just been preaching this, but in Daniel chapter 1, when, when Nebuchadnezzar is, is trying to give these, these Jewish boys who he brought the best and the brightest from Judah into his court. He wants to change their identity in every way. Gives them new names, Babylonian names. They must eat the food and drink the, the, the wine of the court. They are, they are steeped in the Babylonian culture and worldview and everything. And there's a wonderful verse near the end of chapter 1. But Daniel resolved that he would remain loyal to his God. That's a great verse. I don't, you know, I'm 70. Nobody asked me to do this. But I used to speak to youth groups all over the country. I mean, I just, you know, who could ask me to come and speak to 15-year-olds? But when I used to do that, one of my favorite focal points of a message, whatever it was I was speaking on, I would always say to these young people, it's similar to what is, is really a way to paraphrase Daniel, decide beforehand the kind of person you want to be. Decide beforehand 
Make up your mind the kind of person you want to be. Resolve to be that kind of person. You know, yeah, you know, I think I may have mentioned this a you while. Did, did I? Okay. I mean, it's just that's that is the message we should be sending to young people today, and I mean to all believers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Make up your mind. Don't decide what you're going to do with your body when your parents are gone for a weekend. Your boyfriend's in the house. That's not the time to make up your mind. It's just it's just at resolved. This is the person I want to be. And really, that's what, I mean, if you want to paraphrase it in a way, that's what Peter is saying. Decide the kind of person you want to be. And the place to start is humble yourself before the Lord and cast those worries and anxieties you have on him because he cares for you. And the result is a clarity of who you are, sober, watchful, so that you can resist all of the temptations of those who are out to nail you, your adversaries. I mean, it's just, it's working through that. And that is, that's a pattern, it's a discipline, it's a series of habits. We learn those. And uh, Woody gave a good example, just knowing the scriptures that you can hurl back. Or these are thoughts coming into my mind. I'm still wrestling a little bit with some bitterness because of what things that happened to the school I used to lead. Much better than it used to be the last couple of months. But now what I do is when these thoughts come into my mind, I immediately start quoting a bunch of scripture. I mean that. And I please, I'm following up on Woody, so I'm not saying anything better than Woody, our teacher this morning, is saying. Because that is a great thought. But it's just, it's, it's that habit. It's that pattern. This is how I deal with it. And I'm deciding beforehand how I'm going to deal with it. Okay? But the last thing is recognizing when we're being tempted to whether it's scale or whatever, Absolutely. Cheat or whatever. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that takes a little, that takes a little uh, practice, too. <clears throat> it, it just, it's just, we're learning what dependence, and the way Peter puts here, the humility, learning what that means in our lives. Yeah. The last major part of the book, and I can hardly believe I'm uttering these words, but the late, last major part of the book, verses 10 through, then there's a little end, final greeting type thing. But I entitled it there in your notes, The Need for Grace. The Need for Grace. What a, what a refreshing way to end this epistle. And after you have suffered a little while, a little while, that's the second time uh, this is an important phrase in the New Testament. You see it in a number of places. I think it's the second time it's used in this book. This is, a, this is an eternal perspective on things. Whatever you're going through is going to last a little while. Now, that might be 20 years, but from God's perspective, who's eternal and infinite, it's a little while. Do you understand what he, do you understand what he means by that? A little while may not be from your perspective, because it may have been going on for 27 years. (laughs) But he's saying, after you suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will him restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. So, 
let's let's work our way to those. What's the Lord going to restore, confirm, strengthen, establish? Let's let's work all let's let's work all those out. But how does He do that? A little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ, will Himself accomplish this. So, affirming a couple of things: number one, God is sovereign. And because he's sovereign, now this is really an important part of the sentence, because he's sovereign, he wants us by faith to have his perspective on things. And what is that perspective? It's an eternal perspective. It isn't going to last. For a little while, you suffer. A little while, you struggle. Your children are going to grow up, Andrew, and it's not always going to be like this for a little while. I don't know why I said that, but it's just you. But for a little while, and then you'll have the wonderful disease of adolescence to deal with. And that will, that will be another for a little while. I'm, I'm making humor out of something that's quite profound. As we grow in our knowledge, understanding, and dependence on the Lord, we do begin to get his perspective. And therefore, we'll watch him, because of that's true, because that's true, watch him restore, confirm, and strengthen, and establish us. Um, Restore, some translations have rehabilitate. If you're not as close to God as you used to be, guess who moved, as it's been said. So it's, it's just, it's, it's another way of saying our utter dependence on the Lord, where we begin to grow in our understanding and have his perspective on things, because he's a God of grace. He owes us nothing, offers us everything, restore He'll confirm. That's a a hard word. What does it mean, confirm? To stabilize. To resolve all the tension and anxiety. And strengthen you. And again, that's just the best way to translate. Strengthen. The resources you need, he'll give them to you. And establish you. establish you. He'll put the marker down you stay there. <laughs> and it's just, it, it, it's just a wonderful restatement of goodness of almost everything Peter's been saying. Um, our, our dependence on the Lord results in, a, in, a, in the perspective he has about things. For a little while this is going to go on. Because remember he's promised us eternal glory in Christ. We've said this zillions of times. The future promise of God should govern present behavior. Because of what the Lord has promised to us, it should influence how we live now. That's what he's saying. That because of all that, remember, it is God himself that will restore you, confirm you, stabilize, resolve, strengthen, and establish you. This is what the Lord does day in and day out in our lives. 
And as we, we get away from him for a little while, say, Lord, I can handle this, and then we mess it all up. We just The Lord is just, he's constantly, constantly restoring us to the intimacy and fellowship. And, and that's just, we learn that. We learn that. We learn that. And then Peter, it's just, he just can't help himself. He just explodes into this great doxology. It's like he, you can just see, I can no longer hold it in. To him be dominion forever. <laughs> so he launches into this great doxology just at the end. So it's, the focus is, the operative phrase there is the God of all grace. Remember, there are three dimensions to God's grace. There's common grace, which God showers on all human beings. Remember Jesus says, the sun shines on the just and the unjust. The rains come on the unjust and the unjust. The just and the unjust. That's common grace. It doesn't only rain on 774 where I live. The sun doesn't only shine 774 where I live. The cul-de-sac I live in. It shines on my Buddhist neighbor up the street. And my naturalistic, atheistic neighbor to my left, to the north of my house. And it rains. It rains on their property, too. That's common grace. Then there's saving grace. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, For by grace, through faith, you're saved. Not of works, lest any man should boast. And then there is the sustaining grace. That's what Peter's talking about. The grace that sustains us day in and day out in our walk with the Lord. The God of all grace. The common and saving, but the sustaining grace. I've... I've told, I told you about the time I had to say my first communion, didn't I? Mm-hmm. That to me, that, that, you know, I've studied that stuff, I knew it. But when Jerry said that to me, uh, the music pastor, this is year, decades and decades ago, when I was about to say my first communion as an ordained pastor, just got ordained. And that's when they had the glass little tumblers, not the plastic ones. They're so heavy. Oh, I still remember that. And he just, he put his arm around me and he said, well, Jim, your anxiety, you're really upset. Yeah, I'm worried. Yeah, Jerry, I'm coming apart. Well, I guess God's grace is sufficient for that, too, and walked away. I just, for me, that was, that was the most important thing anybody could say to me because it reminded me again, my God is a God who promises to sustain me. Sustaining grace. He owes me nothing. He offers me everything, and it's true for every one of us. Andrew? Um, during periods in my life when, when, I've, when I've gone through struggles, I mean, kind of big picture here, all the way back to, like, cast your anxieties on him and mm-hmm. resist and then um, suffer a little while, and the end game is obviously glorious. But in the midst of that, sometimes I feel like, and I think David has in a psalm, at one point, like, God, you're just standing there watching me. Like, I don't, there's silence coming from you with all my crying out. Can you speak to that with, I mean, the end game is in mind, but when you're in that day-to-day and you don't necessarily, and I want to be careful about using the word feeling, but you're you're not perceiving (coughs) uh, the strength to sustain you that you're praying for. What you have any thoughts about that? The silence in it? We really need it. <laughs> you know, Andrew, I, that's, that's a, that is a fantastic question. It's a very piercing question because it gets to the heart of where I think almost all of us have been at one point or another. Um, 
And I'm not sure I can give you a template that covers all of that, but the, it does seem um, that often the silence of God is to strengthen our faith in him. That sounds almost like an oxymoron that, you know, that, that doesn't, but um, I, I think it's an extraordinary example, but nonetheless, it is an example. Abraham makes a, God makes a promise to Abraham, I'm going to give you a son. How long do he and Abraham, he and Sarah, excuse me, wait for that? 25 years till Isaac is born. And when, when Peggy and I, we, we had, uh, we cannot have our own children where um, we struggled with infertility those early uh, decade, of, uh, 12 years of our lives and married until we got our first child. But that was one of those things. It was, I don't know if any of you have ever struggled with infertility or you know someone or maybe your children have struggled if you have adult children or whatever. But there's probably, especially for a woman, but for a man too, to not be able to have your own children when your sisters are having children and your friends all have families and you, that is really, really difficult. I mean, that is really difficult. And I mean, we prayed and we, we did all the medical things that, you know, you're supposed to do and all those things that we just were not able to have our own children. And it was, I remember, I can remember my wife saying that, said, where is God? She's not answering. He's silent. We're not getting any clarity here, you know, and I don't know what to say to her except, honey, we have a choice. We either have to believe God has our best interests at heart and we have to trust him, or we have to say this is all a lie. And we flee to something else. What other options do we have? Do we really believe that God does have our interest at heart, our best interest at heart, has a plan, and he wants us to simply trust him. And so I'm saying a lot because that's a very personal thing. If you don't mind, I'm answering very personal. But that was, for me and for my wife, when we uh, got Jonathan, when we were in Dallas, Texas, and I still can remember that. We were married over 12 years. And we were on the second floor. And this caseworker brought up this eight-day-old little black-haired boy and gave him to us. All of those 12 years were no longer important. And so we just, I can remember taking Jonathan home and holding, we were in an apartment in Dallas, I was in graduate school then, but, and just holding my arms and just saying, thank you, Lord, thank you, Lord, he was worth waiting for. That's, I don't know how else to answer it. And each one of the great individuals of scripture, well, I think you could say almost, Joseph would be another one. Think of how long. He went all through these things where there are times when the silence of God has been evident in his life. Why am I in prison, Lord? For trumped up charges? I didn't do that. You know. Abraham waited a while too. Yeah, that's uh, 25 years. So I mean it's just it's it's that's because honestly, that's what Peggy and I said. We have a choice. Either everything we believe is an absolute lie or in faith, we have to believe that God has our best interests at heart, and he wants us to trust him through this. And, you know, so we waited another six years, and Joanna came. And, you know, it was the same 
the same expression of incredible joy and unbelievable grace from God that he allowed us to have a second child. So faith is, is hope. And in <clears throat> Romans 8, 24, Paul describes hope and says, who hopes for what you see? Mm-hmm. And then what you in, don't. in Romans 12, 12, he says, be joyful in hope. Mm-hmm. And <clears throat> patient in affliction. Mm-hmm. And faithful in prayer. Mm-hmm. That's right. Faith energizes hope, and hope strengthens faith. That's not original with me, by the way. <laughs> but it's, 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 that's really true. It's, it's, it's the outworking and living out of those things. That, that's, really, that's really what happens in our lives. So, Andrew, does that, I mean, yes. I don't know how else to respond to you in that way, because that's a hard question. I can never explain the silence of God on things. But... Uh, if we believe that God has our best interest in heart, in those times of silence, to trust him is what he wants us to do. And then almost always um, we see a little bit of what he was doing or, or we praise him for what he does send when, when we wait. It's the hope that's in the Absolutely. I mean, it's just a... <clears throat> yeah. One thing that in a real note to me in recent years <clears throat> the illustration that Christ used uh, it wasn't an illustration as much as it was just his way of living he told God you know please remove this mm. from me but nevertheless not my will but yep. thine be yep. done yep. and that's helped me on mm. some heavy hitters stuff that's good. That's good. That's good. That's good. Take it away, Lord, but your will be done. <laughs> another, I just thought of this too, another uh, is Paul. You know, whatever his thorn in the flesh was, you remember he prayed? Mm-hmm. Lord, take it, take it. And the Lord said, no, no. And then Paul says, what's what I learned? God said, my grace is sufficient for you. And so that's what Peter is saying here. God's grace is sufficient the hope, the future promise, eternal glory with Christ. But now we're depending on him to restore us, confirm us, strengthen us, and establish us till he comes back for us. That's why, like I said, humorously, Peter just can't, he just explodes in this great doxology. You just can't help but, you know, <laughs> you know, it's to him be dominion. And that dominion, you know, with that, that's a, that's a ruling word. That's a kingdom word. To him be, that's his sovereignty. Forever and ever. And that's that's whom we trust. <clears throat> you know, we have six minutes. Can we finish this book? Would, would, it, would you let me do that? I'd really like to finish this so that next week we can start Second Peter. <clears throat> Excuse me. By Silvanus. Um, he is probably Peter's amanuensis. I love that word. Don't you like amanuensis? Secretary. <laughs> His secretary, the one most of the apostles dictated their letters. That was a very common thing to do in the ancient world. So Sylvanus is probably the guy who's his secretary, his amanuensis. Faithful brother, as I regard him, I've written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. And 
the demonstrative pronoun this is referring to everything he's just written. Not just the last verse, but the whole letter. <laughs> that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. And so again, it's that uh, way in which we've talked about that grace, the grace of God, uh, what that all means. So it's a wonderful just affirmation and stand for a minute. This is the truth. It manifests the grace of God. Now stand for a minute. Don't budge. And then a little bit of a problematic, but it's not that problematic. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends your greetings. So this is a woman, and we don't know who he's talking about. But she who is at Babylon, Babylon was a metaphor for Rome. Meaning, this woman, saying she, lives in, she lives in Rome. Babylon was a metaphor for, um, for Rome. Uh, I should really say the church at Rome, uh, and that, that's uh, um, a reference. Second uh, John chapter 1 speaks of an elect lady, Babylon. It represents usually something... Uh, the center of evil, and uh, Rome was regarded, because that was the Roman Empire. It's not talking about religious Rome, it's talking about political Rome. And so does Mark, my son. This is John Mark, who uh, was the nephew of Barnabas and was a close friend of Paul. I remember they departed for a little bit over at Mark. That's who this is. He's not his son. That doesn't mean his biological son, but his spiritual son. He discipled him. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Holy kiss is one of the reasons why in the first century Christians were charged with committing incest. Because called each other brother and sister and they kissed each other and hugged each other all the time. There's a lot of that going around in the 21st century church. You know, a lot of huggers in your church. Is there huggers in your church? There are huggers in my church. You know, they, see you, they see you about every third day and the first, they, they just hug you. That's okay. <laughs> I'm being facetious a little bit, but it's, maybe you don't have huggers. You know what I'm talking about. But it's, he's just he's talking in verse 14 about a demonstrable expression of brotherly and sisterly love. This was highly unusual in the ancient world. But it became, it was that, that strong sense of affection and mutuality in the early church. Because they, they were all collectively facing increasing persecution and ostracizing, being ostracized by the, by the Greco-Roman culture. And so it's just a wonderful expression. And then he closes, Peace to all of you who are in Christ. And the peace there is shalom. Peace with God and peace with one another. Shalom. You are at rest with God. Everything's been settled in Christ. And so it's just a wonderful way to end the book. It's not an unusual way to end uh, a New Testament epistle. But um, I don't get to say this very often, but we finished a book. Which, uh, it's taken us quite a while to get through First Peter, but it's a rich little epistle. It's a little gem in the New Testament that uh, isn't often studied. So I decided we'd study it, and you didn't seem to be objecting to it, so we've studied it. Next week, we're going to start 2 Peter, um, which is shorter, a um, little bit of a different theme to it, but I hope you'll be blessed by that. I don't think it'll take us quite as long. Any final questions or thoughts? Uh, and maybe this is for next week, but is it the same audience? 
A little bit of a different audience. That's a good question. A little bit of a different audience, uh, but the same basic, the scattered, those who have moved out from Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria in Anatolia. What's yep. the time frame? Uh, about a year later. About a year later. Mm-hmm. Yes, Tim. Is this John Mark that you talk about mm-hmm. now? Is, is he the same person that wrote Mark? I mean, the, the Gospel of Mark? The Gospel of Mark. Mm-hmm. Same. And this is That's the one that was a nephew of Barnabas. I was just looking at the introduction to Mark. It said that he was identified with Peter, mm-hmm. associated mm-hmm. with Peter. Right. And so, so That's why most, uh, most expositors who study the Gospel of Mark, and I think there's, there's reason for this, that Mark spent a lot of time interviewing Peter as he wrote the Gospel. Because a lot, some have said this is the gospel of Jesus Christ according uh, through Peter's eyes, oh. as Mark was his close colleague. Mm-hmm. Lord, we thank you for our time in this rich, rich little gem of First Peter, and especially those last uh, uh, little paragraphs that we talked about this morning. It's uh, it's just, this is kind of the, the the cutting edge of our faith. It's how we live. It's it's that humility and dependence on you that results in uh, in how we deal with um, the the kinds of things that are part of our lives, from resisting the devil to being very alert and sober minded and, and and clarity of 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 things, and then cultivating that understanding of the precious nature of your grace. And even as Andrew had the, the courage to ask that question, the important question, Lord, that sometimes it certainly appears as if you're silent. You're not responding at all to our prayers or our hurt or our anxieties. But you are. And sometimes you delay. Sometimes there is a silence, or at least appeared to be a silence, because you're growing and testing our faith, and you're building our hope so that we can be more and more uh, dependent on you and therefore really manifesting all that you want us to manifest as we live a life that's honoring to you. There's no other way to live because in the circumstances of life, we really have a choice. It's either all lie or it's true and we depend on you and trust you. And then we watch you work. And so often uh, it's worth waiting for. So Lord, I thank you for the men that are here and those who aren't with us. I think of a Fred down Florida, just be with him and continue to give him healing and and strengthen in his in his life and of his wife too. And we pray for Woody's brother Pete. Uh, from what he knows, that the surgery is imminent in the next couple of days. I certainly pray for that. Guide the doctors and anesthesiologists and all the other medical people that will be ministering to him. I pray that it would be a complete success, whatever exactly they're going to do and whatever the the prognosis is. Lord, I really commit that to you. I know this is a source of concern and anxiety, I'm sure, as well. Give him your peace. Give him your strength. And Lord, work in his heart as well through this. So Lord, we commit that to you. And any other needs or concerns that I'm not aware of in the lives of these guys. One thing we know is we don't give you information when you pray that you don't have. You have the information. Prayer is just an important part of our deepening relationship and growth and trust in you. So give us a good rest of this day. Thank you for the sunshine, for the bit of warmer weather. We ask your sustaining grace for the rest of this day and this week until we gather next Wednesday. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. See you next week.